Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I am the director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. I am delighted to welcome you to the meeting this afternoon on the national security implications of climate change. We are honored for this meeting to happen and at this very timely point in time as well as we look at these important issues. And I want to uh, express my, my gratitude and enthusiasm for the partnership that we have in terms of bringing this reading through the partnership with the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, as well as the Center for Climate and Security. And I wanted to be sure and mention that we are joined by some members from the Henry M. Jackson including John Kellerman, who is the president of the Jackson Foundation Board, as well as Mark Eglinton, who is the foundation's executive director. So thank you very, very much for your support, for your long understanding and visionary approach to this important issue and in carrying out the legacy of Senator Susan Jackson, who set up the for whom the foundation was set up to continue his unfinished work in the areas in which he for so long played a very key leadership role while he was here in the Congress and especially in the Senate where he also chaired the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee but where he took such an important leadership role with regard to international affairs, education, human rights, environment and natural resources management and very importantly, the whole role of public service. So we are very, very grateful to the Jackson Foundation, also very, very grateful to the Center for Climate and Security, with whom we are also partnering with regard to this briefing. And we are going to be hearing from a number of people who have a long history and who have given much, much thought to this important issue of climate, what does this really mean for national security, what are the angles that need to be thought about. And to first start off this review, I want to first introduce uh, Colonel Tom Watson, who is the Director of Government Affairs for the Center for Climate and Security. Carol, thank you very much. Uh, the Center for Climate and Security is delighted this event today with EDSI, and uh, thanks to our ESI partners uh, for all your hard work to put this together. The Center for Climate Security would also like to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to join us today for the national security implications of climate change. A briefing to discuss the role of climate change as a threat multiplier in the geopolitical landscape and the implications that it has for national security. This briefing will explore the risk management planning considerations facing the Department of Defense as it seeks to maintain force readiness and bolster infrastructure reserves. We think you'll find today's panels both timely and informative on this important issue. The Center for Climate Security is a nonpartisan security and foreign policy institute with a distinguished advisory board of nationally recognized military, security, and foreign policy experts, some of whom are here today as part of our panel. The Center for Climate and Security 
conducting research and acting as a resource hub in the climate and security field. It is now my pleasure to introduce your moderator for today's events, the Honorable John Conner. Mr. Conner is a member of the Center for Climate Security's Advisory Board. In addition, he is an independent consultant and president of Congress Strategy and Solutions LLC and a non-resident senior advisor at the Center for Strategy and International Studies. Mr. previously served as the principal deputy under Secretary of Defense Comptroller, where he provided advice to the Secretary of Defense on budgetary and financial matters. He has also received energy, installation, and environmental policy throughout the OD as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installation, and Environment. He served as the acting deputy under Secretary of Defense for Installations and Environment, as well as the Assistant Deputy Undersecretary for Installations and Environment. Mr. Conner has also served as a staff member here in Congress, including professional staff of the House International Relations Committee. Prior to that, he was employed in the private sector as an aerospace engineer and defense analyst supporting the Office of Secretary of Defense. He has multiple degrees in MIT and a master's from George Washington University. Ladies and gentlemen,
So uh, immediately to my left uh, is Sherry Fitton. She's a member of our advisory board and a senior fellow at the Wilson Center. Uh, prior to this role, she was CEO and president of the Ocean Leadership Consortium and senior vice president and general counsel and corporate secretary of the Center for Human Analysis. Uh, before that, and in the background, she's the deputy undersecretary of defense for environmental security. And I will say that few people have done more at the nexus of climate and security, particularly for shepherding of the seminal series of reports issued by CNA, starting with the National Security and the Threat of Climate Change Report in 2007. So, her last, uh, John Ron Dees is a member of the Center on Climate, uh, Climate and Security's Advisory Board and chairman of the CNA Military Advisory Board. So, that's the board that put out the study I just referenced. Uh, most recently, he co authored a report on sea level rise and U.S. military mission, uh, issued by the Center on Climate and Security, and there should be copies uh, in the front table. Uh, General Keyes is a retired four-star general from the Air Force. Uh, he retired in November 2007 after completing a career of over 40 years. He is a command pilot with more than 4,000 flying hours of fighter aircraft and with more than 300 hours of combat time. He has seen climate challenges as an operator around the world and as commander confronting the impact uh, on climate on operational readiness at land the Air Force Base and now going based on the uses of the Air Force. Dr. Jerry Galloway, is a member of the Center on Climate and Security's Advisory Board and a co-author of the aforementioned study on sea level rise. He's a professor of engineering at the University of Maryland, focused on water resources and disaster management. He's also a fellow at the Texas A&M Hagler Institute for Advanced Studies, working on urban play in the United States. He joined back to the University of Maryland following a 38-year career in the U.S. Army, retiring as Brigadier General, and served eight additional years in the federal government. Professor Galloway is the owner of Dean of the Faculty and Academic Programs at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces and owner Dean of the Academic Board at uh, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where he was a professor of geography and first head of the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. And last but not least, Rear Admiral Ann Phillips uh, is a member of the Center uh, of the Senate Advisory Board. Previously, she had a 31 year career in the U.S. Navy as a service officer. She commanded Destroyer Squadron 2A. Expeditionary Strike Group 2, and she was a member of the uh, Navy's Climate Change and Energy Task Forces. Uh, after retirement, she chaired an infrastructure working group for the Hampton Road Sea Level Rise Preparedness and Resilience Intergovernmental Pilot Training Project. So, thanks to, to each of you for being here, and I'll turn it over to the Sherry Program. Well, thank you, John. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's great to be here with all of you today. Thank you to the Jackson Foundation, to uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, to CSS, uh, and TESI uh, for organizing this. Many of you looked around for Kelly to remember when we could hardly fill a room uh, on this subject, let alone standing in the moment. So, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I was the youngest and only female staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, at a time when Senator Jackson still served in the Senate, I worked for Senator Nunn, who had just become chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator Warner, John Warner of Virginia, was a ranking Republican. Uh, and there were many days and many times when there was absolutely no difference between Democrat 
national security policy and practice in this country uh, that has, has been around for decades and which I think is incredibly important to this subject uh, and to many others in national security that we face today because we are living in a time that's highly polarized. Uh, but 30 years ago, um, what was more common was that on the Armstrong Committee, you could barely spell the word environment. In fact, that was not my portfolio at all. Um, as most of my colleagues here uh, were old enough like me, I was more like the age of many of you in the audience then. Um, and at that time, we were working on things like nuclear weapons and arms control and um, military readiness and troop readiness. All these issues are still very important. Uh, but during that early, in the early post-Cold War period, in this Cold War period, we began to understand the practices of the industrial age that had led to environmental challenges. Um, and so the Armed Services Committees, both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, created within the Defense Department something that still endures until today called the Strategic Environmental Research and Development Program which took research and science capability. And I think this is very important, a um, sort of underlying factor here, that science, research, technology development, innovation are a core component of everything that we do as Americans, but everything that occurs in national security, and that undergirds our understanding of what our threats are. Because in the first instance, national security start from what are your threats, uh, in the nuclear age, we understood the nuclear threat. We spent billions of dollars of America's GDP to um, defend and deter what we consider to be the highest, uh, highest uh, consequence, but very low probability threat of a blue strike from the Soviet Union. Now, in the climate age, we have in climate change, arguably, uh, equally high, potentially high consequence, and higher probability threat. So that is our challenge. Think of it in terms of risk. What are the risks? And then we plan and program uh, and, and budget accordingly to reduce those risks to our forces, to reduce the risks uh, in operating around the world. So now when we look around the world today, um, we see that there are, there are many threats, of course, terrorism, um, right on our doorstep almost every day, uh, we just Russia, rising China, uh, and among those threats and is climate change. And, uh, you know, that's, the environmental considerations with big defense have always been, in my view, really a bipartisan consideration. Dating back 30 years ago, from what I remember, uh, starting with considerations of how to address environmental problems during the Cold War, during the Cold War and early post-Cold War periods. Uh, and there are a number of programs which John and, and the general staff was here were responsible for administering during their time to DOD either clean up military bases or comply with environmental laws. And as new challenges emerge, we approach each one uh, in its own right. And in the last two decades, it's become very clear that climate change is one of those significant threats to America's national security. 
Uh, and that's why 10 years ago, this year, uh, when I was at CNA before, the military advisory board, uh, General Keaton's now chair, that uh, General Galloway has served on, that Adam Phillips is associated with, that many other leading generals and admirals um, in the armed services have been associated with, to understand uh, what are the national security implications of climate change. And we've characterized that as a threat multiplier, threat multiplier for instability uh, in fragile regions of the world. Uh, and we see it, we see how our the geostrategic posture uh, is affected by climate change. Just take the Arctic. We have a whole new ocean that's been created and opened up uh, within the last decade uh, as a result of the melting of, of uh, rapid melting of sea ice in the Arctic. And now we have to begin to have more capability to operate in the Arctic in ways that we did not need to do a quarter century ago. Um, we see the potential rush for resources uh, as we have there's more access to them, opportunities for additional fishing, navigation, transport, tourism, that bring both opportunities but also risk. Um, so that's just one very important way in which climate change is uh, changing our world as we know it and changing how we have to position um, our armed forces to address that, as well as other capabilities. Um, second is um, important extreme weather events. Uh, we've seen that there are more extreme weather events of various types around the world and we now have to position our forces to be able to respond uh, to increased typhoons, um, increased extreme weather events, storms that might that create new risks, particularly in the Asia Pacific, which one might call sort of the disaster alley uh, of that of that region, where uh, where uh, extreme risk and combined with urbanization that we see now in the areas of largest cities in the world, both uh, also people living in very low-lying areas, everywhere from uh, Bangladesh uh, to the Philippines, that have an increasing risk uh, when there's an extreme storm, sea level rise, um, and uh, with people who are, you know, who need to need assistance. Thirdly, uh, <coughs> I want to leave some, some time here because I think some, some of the subject from my fellow panelists here. We see that it's also affecting our, our military posture at home, our installations, our risk. Uh, all along the Atlantic coast, but a combination of sea level rise, storm surge, and uh, coastal erosion. And that is not a partisan issue. That's something that's affecting us. Uh, all, wherever, our, wherever our coastal military installations are located, uh, and that's if we want to continue to operate, we're going to need to address the infrastructure. Today's a day that the administration is talking a lot about infrastructure. Well, we have a lot, there's a lot of infrastructure and military bases that needs to be hardened and secured against rising seas and extreme weather events. And much of this also connects then with the communities. Uh, wherever our military bases are, they are part of the community. Um, and that brings us into building more resilient communities uh, to addressing these risks because bases are really part of the community. 
followers, people can't get to the base because of nuisance flooding that occurs out on a regular basis. That's a risk for our military, and also is a risk for the community. Uh, so we see that um, these extreme weather events, storm surge, uh, increased desertification occurring around the world, and drought. Uh, in particular, drought, we know that underlying drought is a source of conflict, um, a source of instability between conflicts in both Syria uh, and in the Arab Spring uprisings. And that's now been well documented by research done by CSS and other scholars, that uh, CCS and other scholars, um, that the need to better understand how drought, long drought, is going to be the source of instability and conflicts in the future as the world experiences more water stress and water scarcity, some of it aggravated by climate change and also by water mismanagement. Uh, so these are all uh, nonpartisan, bipartisan issues. They're ones that require us to harness the capabilities across a range of government agencies. I know many of you are, you can't all be working on the Armed Services Committee, so you're working on committees uh, that span a number of, of budgets and jurisdictions. You know the research that's done across a number of agencies, from NOAA to NASA to NSF, including the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, um, is all important, as well as moving our nation forward on that. We've always been leaders in the next wave of energy innovation. We have that opportunity now while caring for those um, who have to make the transition uh, from, one, from fossil energy into new forms of energy. But as we make our country and our world more secure, moving along, staying at the forefront of that energy innovation curve is going to be increasingly important. We have the ability to do that. Uh, and we, we see that we're doing that already today, particularly in the Department of Defense, as we figure out how to power the force for the future, looking at everything from smart microwave, microwave to um, wind and solar to power our forward operating bases when they're at the front, so they can be more resilient and operate more securely. John? Okay, so, having said all that, let me ask you a question. You know, if this were political, what would we be doing? For one, we would be enjoying a renaissance with much less oversight. And that causes us problems. And number two, we would probably have more money to, to work some of these issues. But the real question is, you know, why does the DOD care about this at all? Because even though we live in the communities, you know, we're just normal people, we just have to wear a uniform in our uh, profession, we're not necessarily known as tree hunters and environmentalists and all the rest of that. But the reason we care is because there are really three things that we focus on in the military. The first thing is mission effectiveness. The ability to go and do what we have to do. We go and fight America's wars when she calls upon us to do so, and we win those wars. So we have to be able 
The other issues that come up are how do we test the equipment for the future? We have to come up with new methods of uh, acquisition of material that we're going to need. Uh, the trucks that we use now, the combat vehicles that we use, the ships and the, the planes, all have to be prepared to operate in this different environment. Uh, my experience in Vietnam with dust was, uh, it was terrible. Our helicopters are very wonderful, but you put them down consistently in dust, just as you did in Iraq or you did down in Afghanistan, and you create severe problems. If you're operating in environments where the temperatures are very much different than they were when you planned to operate there, then you can't get the helicopters to go to a certain elevation. You can't do other things that make your operation move smoothly. So we've got to think about what equipment will we require in the future? How will we test it? Uh, do you want us to be ready to go? We can't use, people are saying, fighting the last war. You can't operate with the last war's equipment when the world around you is changing. So it is important that the military consider what is on the horizon and what are we going to do about that horizon? Uh, if we have to land in the Pacific, we've had a, a little Pacific chariot uh, dimension the entire issue of uh, operating on islands in the Pacific Quadrant. As sea level rises, subsidence occurs in places, can we still land where we used to be able to land? And will our vessels, when the seas are more intense, will they be able to move ashore the landing craft and have to move our supplies? So we have to think through all of these, and you would expect them to do that. And that's why I say, this kind of thinking is going on at the highest levels all the time. Uh, it is only when there is interference in the thinking, people say, don't do it, uh, don't think this way, uh, it's really not happening, that the military begins to push back a little bit and say, no, we have to be ready for these eventualities. It's terribly important that we do that. There's a last one that is kind of interesting, because we don't hardly think of it. Um, we don't live just on military installations. We get supplies from all over the world. We, you can recall in 2011 when uh, the area north of Bangkok, Thailand, an uh, area of great industrial power where they were manufacturing parts and all sorts of systems that were being used, we discovered later, in systems in the United States. If that area is underwater, we can't get the supplies for just-in-time manufacturing. We have to be aware of those sorts of things. Uh, last year, you may recall it was flooding in, in South and North Carolina. Interstate 95 was shut down for a week for about 30 miles. You can't move large amounts of material when you need to when you go to another water. How are we prepared for that? Our military installations have ties to neighboring communities, the lifelines, whether it's the power, or it's the water, or it's the roads. Are they all working together to get us to the right approach when the time comes? that we have one of these major events. You've seen the quote thousand-year floods. You've seen the uh, disastrous storms that we had on our coast. All of those have to, we have to be ready for those. And that's what the military is trying to do, to look ahead and see what is it that we're dealing with, and can we, in fact, be ready for the future? And can we, in our installations especially, do it in coordination with our civilian neighbors? Uh, in our study on the Gulf, uh, or on the Gulf of the East Coast, uh, communities tied into the military, we found that there are interesting challenges in every one of them. Because we now have military personnel living off post, have to go off post. We have workers that man key installation uh, facilities that we need to have get to the post. Uh, we, again, need them to support what we're doing and we need to support what they're doing as we adaptively deal with climate change. And that doesn't mean always we're going to build a wall, we're going to build levees, we're going to build breakwater. We're going to go for natural systems. We're going to find new ways to do it. Your military 
time I got a job as a support officer. I drove ships for 31 years, and like my military peers here today on active duty around the world, I'm an operator. I'm trained to view a mission in strategical, strategic, operational, and tactical terms, do what's required, clear-eyed pragmatism, prepare for and execute that mission. I don't do it with any sort of political focus whatsoever. I have a job, and I know how to do a job. DOD has a long history, in fact, to taking climate impact seriously because they bring an intensified operational risk and global instability, as the other panelists have mentioned this morning, this afternoon. This is a real threat. It's not an imagined threat based on a political agenda. We, in the Defense Department, have an inherent responsibility to prepare to execute our mission. That responsibility drives serious consideration for climate change because we are seeing more and more of the impacts of it in our daily lives as we execute our mission and prepare for it here at home and also as we operate overseas. And finally, climate change adaptation requires a whole of government approach, and the defense community needs the opportunity to execute, as Donald uh, implied, um, without a constant shifting of perspectives, words, strategies. Um, impediments to be able to execute its mission. We know what we need to do, we know what we're faced with. Allow us to plan, evaluate risk, prepare, and operate. We have a national security mission to fill after all. The challenge is particularly acute, as some of you have heard uh, mentioned today, on uh, coastal military installations, and nowhere more so than in Hampton Roads, where I live. Hampton Roads is a region on the front lines of climate impact right now. We're experiencing sea level rise at twice the rate of other East Coast locations, second only to New Orleans in the degree of, of change that we are seeing, because we're also dealing with lands and sightings that are due to the Hampton Roads area. This is a serious and growing threat not only to regional military guidance, but to national military guidance. Why? Because there are almost 29 separate federal entities within the Hampton Roads region spread across more than 100 distinct facilities. Of these, the largest percentage, nearly two-thirds, are Department of Defense facilities, and two-thirds of those are Navy facilities, including unique national assets like Naval Station Norfolk, arguably the largest Naval Station in the world. Newport News Naval Shipyard, our only aircraft carrier construction and refueling facility, and one of only two submarine construction facilities in the country. In addition, as General Keyes has mentioned, the Air Force Combat Command, Army Training and Doctrine Command, major army logistics bases, special operations forces, and key training facilities for those commands, the largest NATO command outside of Europe, Supreme Allied Command for Transformation, is in Norfolk, Virginia, Jefferson Land, NASA Landing, and oh, by the way, we're the fourth largest commercial port on the East Coast, Anchorage and Chesapeake Bay, all of which helps to support not only the economy of the country, the economy of Virginia, but the military facilities that reside in the Forty-five percent of our regional uh, economic development is based on the presence of federal facilities, as well as critical infrastructure. So it impacts, as we've heard, the whole community, the whole region is, is impacted by what's happening here and its ability to support the military. Sixty-five percent of the 1.7 million people who live in Hanover's 17 cities and municipalities travel to another city to work. So resilience and adaptation can't be limited to just protecting a base or a facility or a city. It has to be done across the whole of government community within the region. In my ongoing work in the region, I often have 
group of these little people. A native colonel and his wife. I had another Christmas party. As soon as she found out I worked at sea level rise, she couldn't wait to spend the next 30 minutes telling me about life in Hampton Roads dealing with the water. She had to learn to drive a four-wheel drive vehicle. She had to learn to figure out all the storms and the weather, the tide, what to do to get in and out of her community. She had to learn different ways to get places that she needed to go to be able just to go to the store, pick up her own work, execute her daily life. There are people like I know in Virginia Beach who have to decide what vehicle to take to work and when they're going to leave based on the tide cycle. And when the wild is used to be only limited to significant storms, now this can happen anytime. The wind's blowing the right way, we've got sunny days lighting, and you have to change your plan. You have to operate differently in your life. I know a retired military couple who live in a very prominent mobile neighborhood who openly discuss their concern that they will have to abandon their home because constant flooding that makes it difficult to get in and out of the neighborhood, even though it doesn't directly impact their house. So we are doing this on a routine basis. People change their lives every day in Hampton Roads just to be able to execute whatever it is that they need to do. And many of those people, many, are involved in supporting the military in some way, shape, or form, and they are the families of service members who are stationed in the region. So discussing the national security implications of climate change, you can see that Hampton Roads is really crucial for the entire range of changes between the large number of federal and DOD facilities and the fact that we are now constantly dealing with water in places we don't want, need, or expect it on a more ever-long basis. We are really dealing with challenges at our present, and we know we will deal with them into our future. Within that context, the Department of Defense it has an inherent responsibility to prepare and take this very seriously. And they've got to have the ability to plan and interact with the global community, share data in an open manner so that we can plan regionally to not only support our local and regional missions, but to execute our national security strategy. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to sort of sum up uh, the answer to the question that I posed, which was, uh, is that, is that what amount is this politics and what amount is this as regardless of politics? And it sounds like you have to pay attention to climate change regardless of politics. And they were going
you have a notice on that when something does happen, someone gets notified or someone can go out and fix that. So that's sort of a, an approach to okay, what will we have to do when you can no longer walk across uh, the North Pole, but you can sail across the North Pole. That makes a, a big uh, difference. Another thing is, of course, I think, uh, and Jerry can probably talk better about this than I can, but it's just a matter of water. If people don't have enough water, then even when you send your troops in there, they're not going to quickly dig up well and find water either. So it's a matter of how do you make water, how do you reclaim water, how do you make sure the water is pure enough to use, how do you carry out water. Do you go in with uh, pallets of plastic bottles or do you go in with a couple of canteens? Do you have the water buffalo, the big uh, apparatus that we use to move the water around? Can you go in and use your desalinization or you can use some of the other? systems that we have that actually reclaim uh, uh, water. I think that's a, an issue that we get in some of these, uh, some of these areas. In other areas, uh, from an Air Force standpoint, we have looked at the, the issue of working with working base, or the base is going to be handled. That could be a plus. You've got to have a long piece of concrete in order to get in and uh, operate. Otherwise, you're operating a great range. And so in some cases,
all kinds of communication, uh, maritime domain awareness, uh, capabilities, potentially even a deep water port uh, up in that region, uh, which the U.S. has, has never had. Uh, and so, really, the, this region of the world is, is changing more rapidly than anyone anywhere else uh, on the planet now, and it's putting the U.S. and other nations in the world, and not only other nations, because in countries from China to Singapore to Spain see new opportunities uh, to uh, obtain the energy, the fish, the tourist, tourism, uh, or other uh, other opportunities that will be there in that, in that region. And that will bring, as I said, both significant risks, which today we're not really, we're not really prepared uh, to address. And that will, will force us to sort of shift how we put those as priorities for that region compared to other places we need to have force available uh, throughout the world. So, uh, so that's sort of the, the, the overview of my mission, and we can get to some more questions on that in, in a little bit. But so clearly, the DOD needs to plan in advance uh, for the missions that they're going to have to be going as, as the world changes their own missions that they have to think about. From a, from a fixed infrastructure perspective, the world, if we're in a given location and the world is changing around us and it's going to affect those things that we can't do, not directly, not easily. Admiral, uh, you recently sat uh, in chair of a 
Can you characterize how this particular sea level rise and subsidence issue is driving uh, requirements? What do, what do folks actually need to communicate to each other? How much planning needs to be done jointly? And is it just in, I mean, Hampton Roads is, is sort of like the front line of, of this issue. But there are other places where municipalities need to talk to the basis and have, frankly, on other issues for, for a long time. What, what are the kinds of things that need to be going back and forth in communication between those two? I think the first thing is, is understanding uh, common, common standards. Uh, as an example, if uh, the defense department is going to plan uh, to adapt uh, to sea level rise implications in the Hampton Roads region over the next period of time, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what sea level rise scenario are they using to make those plans? And how does that work with the cities or with the national cities? If they aren't using the planning to uh, the same standard, then, then they are ever going to be in the middle of this dependency and interdependency of what we infrastructure, roads, highways, um, utilities uh, will need to be operated based on one set of circumstances, but if the city is using a lower utilized there, or as an example, meaning they won't be as much lower at the same time, um, then, then they won't be they won't be prepared better. So shared common standards is important. Uh, there are also even though there are many opportunities for the federal facilities and for the local communities to engage with each other, we found that there were not a lot of actually structured ways in which that takes place. Um, there, 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 were, there don't appear to be a lot of um, you know, detailed planning, um, infrastructure updates, meetings, um, memorandums of understanding where they would share information with each other on a routine basis. Um, that was actually kind of puzzling. We had in our, in our working group. Um, just by chance, the stormwater issue was from, from Little Creek, joint expedition of Little Creek. The cities of Norfolk and Virginia Beach, which are the two cities that surround that area, have actually never met. And during the course of the working group, they were all in the room together. They actually were able to share data that they wanted from each other for 20 years, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. So the challenge is, of course, 20 years ago, the need wasn't as what it is today. So we are seeing some, you know, now that there's a greater need, there's a greater interest in more established, more routine uh, policy plans and procedures so that the cities and the uh, federal facilities can actually share and, and plan together. The other challenge, of course, is budgets. Um, the federal government's budget system is not aligned with the city or doesn't align with the state budget particularly. So uh, the challenge of making all those things fit together to be able to plan to actually execute things where perhaps joint coordination is required, that's difficult. And then I think the last thing I would say is um, when you look at
Um, how to prepare for that? We're going to be challenged on our roadways and collaborate with So, what makes Santa Rosa so interesting is there's so many cities and so many facilities that are all together that all have to collaborate. So, it's, uh, it's fascinating and, and it will be a great challenge for the future. So, before we go to questions from the audience, I actually have something handed in a piece of paper with a question from the audience. So, so, since they had the forethought to do that, they get to go first. Um, uh, the, the, the question was, what, what is the, uh, along the same lines here, talking about adaptation in the infrastructure, what is the impact of uh, the President's uh, executive orders or appealing the executive orders on, on the military? So, if, does anybody have any comments on, say, for example, I recall the, the adaptation of the executive order was, was repealed. Um, are, are there specific impacts that are going to come from that? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Okay.
I believe that the people thinking about the infrastructure program that we'll see in the next uh, week or the next two weeks recognize that if you're going to build, build for the future and not for today. And my hope is that uh, we will continue on a path in which federal funders can understand. It's like a, a dual program, too, because I have some folks that work in the insurance industry and work in the insuring insurance companies in that, in that space. And I, I frankly think this is going to be commercially driven because you're not going to be able to get any kind of uh, insurance. It, it's like the folks down in Miami. Miami has looked at this and said, holy smokes, if you've been down on the Strand down there in, uh, in Miami, you know, the road is fairly close just behind the beach. That's pretty cool. They built that, they started building that, raising the road, and they had these little uh, suitable system of language and leaders that uh, allow the water not wash up, it stops the water, but then water will come out. But then when the water gets so high um, in the ocean, that one-way valve doesn't go either way, and it stops. And now all the rain dams up behind it. So the people that have all these nice houses on the other side of the road, they can't get insurance because their first floor is not classified as a basement. So there's all that sort of, you know, unintended consequences, but it's commercially approved. If you can't, if you're not going to be able to get insurance, then you think twice about it. Well, your insurance company said, well, how could I get insurance? Can I build it to a different, even if I'm not mandated federally, can I do something so I can protect myself from the catastrophic loss? So I, I think that some of these things that other commercial interests are going to weigh in on this and more or less force us to do that, force us to do the right thing without governmental rules and that. So, so I'd like to get a couple questions from uh, the audience. If we could, we have a room full of staffers. I'd really be interested in hearing what people are, are interested in. And we've got about 20 more minutes left. We have a wandering mic going around. Um, and if you could wait before you get, uh, ask a question until you get the mic, just so that we have it fit that into the, uh, uh, the tape uh, of the video. So there's the mic. Does anybody have any questions? Don't worry, I have a page full. Nobody wants to raise their hand. Uh, did anybody else have any uh, thoughts that they want to add? Yeah, I would say 
percentage of that, in order to be the largest single user, 1.7% of all tattoos used in the United States. We run on equivalent to about 350,000 a day versus, you know, the big U.S. is running on 20 million barrels a day. Figure out, that's a lot bigger. So if the DOD goes out of business tomorrow, we really don't move the needle on mitigation. I mean, our country, we're going to try and be good stewards. We're going to try and fly our airplanes and sail our ships very efficiently. Or we're going to use alternative uh, non-polluting fuel or as possible. We're going to do all of those things because it makes business sense and budget sense for us. But this is one of these things that we can't win this war. We can show why it's important, why we believe in it, etc. But we're not going to win this one. But we just don't have the market flow. We don't have the volume to make it happen. So from a mitigation standpoint, that's going to be great. And we will do what we can do. And we will do, do the right thing. But that's not going to fix it. Because we're still going to have 98% of the budget that needs to be fixed. That said, and I, I agree with General Keats on that point, um, when the military lowers its carbon blueprint, so to speak, uh, it's also able to provide, to provide leadership as it has in other technologies and innovation uh, throughout, you know, throughout the years. Uh, in the transition, you go back in the transition from steam to coal, uh, to oil, to nuclear, uh, all forms of energy, the United States military is the forefront of leading those massive shift transitions in energy. Today, the U.S. military, while not alone, is among those leading in that transition to diversify its energy mix. Uh, of course, it's going to continue to operate on forms of fossil energy for the foreseeable future. Uh, that said, when I was in the Department of Defense, the way that uh, we budgeted oil, it was essentially a tax on the rest of the defense budget. We come in at the end of the year, after the services, the Army, Navy, Air Force, everybody else built their budget to do whatever they needed, and then if the price of fuel had gone up that year, then it was an extra cost on the military. So there was, in some ways, a direct incentive to be more fuel efficient, because then you could use those funds for military readiness, training, other operations, equipment. Um, and at the same time, being more innovative, being more efficient, uh, improves security and energy security and energy resilience. Um, that's, that's why, um, you know, Secretary of Defense Maps, uh, when he was commanding our forces in Iraq, uh, famously said, uh, unleash us from the tender of fuel. Uh, that didn't necessarily mean unleashes completely from fossil energy, but unleashes from the long supply lines that are putting our soldiers, sailors, and employees at risk and coming over the fuel to the front. And in those 10 years since he made those comments, uh, the military has gotten very busy diversifying and innovating uh, in being able to reduce the burden on our forces of those long logistic supply lines. Uh, I would add to that the military set the example in our relations with our partners overseas. They're very impressed by 
Hi, thank you all for coming here today to speak with us. Um, my main question is, you talked a lot about the effects that we're seeing with the linkage between climate change um, and rising sea levels. I was wondering what kind of effects are we seeing away from those coastal areas, more in the mid-range or not as close to rivers or lakes? Thank you. Well, everybody's close to the river. I'll tell you that as we learn. Uh, and, and we are seeing challenges right now across the nation. Uh, with uh, the effects of larger storms and when they come more intense storms. All you have to do is go to Houston or Baton Rouge or other cities in this country where there are problems. That same thing can happen with military destruction. So what heretofore had not been a problem has now become a big problem. And, and we're working on, as I mentioned, or was in the introduction, I'm working on the challenge of urban flooding in the United States, which is hardly ever seen because it doesn't last for more than two or three days to get your house back. But if you're very poor, uh, you have a very difficult time. Same thing if you've got older barracks, military installation, and you get these intense rainfall events. Or we've talked about the temperature rise. Uh, if you have in, in places in the United States, it's just too hot to train. Well, that's a problem for us. So it's not just coastal. There's all sorts of things, including where we, we don't have these great concrete runways. Uh, asphalt uh, on roads and runways uh, in Tennessee can be uh, certainly a problem. You There were, in addition, I worked on a pilot project in, in the Hanover region, which you heard. There were, in addition to that, two other daily pilots. One was in Mount Hermione uh, Air Force Base, and the other was in the Michigan Army Air National Guard. Both of those pilots were largely focused on drought, fire issues, some extent flash flooding, but a whole different set of circumstances than the sea level rise and the other part. So, uh, you know, three very different regions, three very different challenges, all climate driven. And just reminded me that. You know, Mount Home is one of my bases, one of the big issues Mount Home is off the first drawing out. And how do we get more competitive to go through this movie dance? How do we get water out of the Snake River to get to Mount Home? You know, it's a great place, it's got great capability, but the issue there is not enough water, and that's one of the non refilling aquifer. So you start looking around and back to OSD and the services from surveying the basis and where is the water going to be above? Close you get to the bay, to the coast, and you start to have salt water intrusion, and that's a whole other set of uh, problems. And then some of the high lands you end up, you're just not going to have enough water. How do we protect uh, that capability? And you start looking at it from an actual standpoint. In some areas, we have way too much water in some of the rivers, and some of the rivers, we haven't got enough water, but that was the water we were planning on generating electricity. So all of that kind of, we got to start looking at those kinds of things. Again, it goes back to how that could be that we stand at tactically and dollar wise, what can we do to get this back to something that will work? And when do we have to start? And how do we know we're making progress? And then you always ask the question, what will go on? Yeah, that's not what you're here. 